Hello everyone. Welcome to the second part of our lecture on the 20th century. We'll be discussing neoclassicism, rock, rap, and postmodernism. First, let's talk about neoclassicism. If you remember last week, we talked about how modernism totally threw tradition out the window. Well, the problem with that is, is it also kind of threw all of the audience out the window, too. Um, it was really hard to make a living being a truly modernist composer because not a lot of people wanted to listen to music that didn't sound like music. So neoclassicism was sort of a reaction to this, saying, well, we can keep some of the rules of modernism, we can change things up a little bit, but we shouldn't make music so unlistenable that we don't make a living from it anymore. Um, they wanted to synthesize the old and the new styles to create more accessible works. Our first, neoclassic, our first neoclassical composer is Germaine Taillefer, and she studied at the Paris Conservatory, and while she was there, she met up with a group of like-minded people called Les Six, and they were determined to write music that was distinctly French and free of German influence. Now, you might think that that's odd, um, but again, we, we have to think about the three Bs, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. Uh, these composers dominated the classical repertoire in Western Europe all through the 1800s, and then Wagner came along, and it was just another nail in the coffin for anybody that wasn't German. Or at least that's what Lacey's thought. Um, for them, they thought that uh, they needed to make music that was French, and for them, French meant playful and less emotionally charged than German works. You know, German works were just a little bit too heavy. Um, Telfair's piece is called Concertino for Harp and Orchestra. Um, a concertino just means a shorter concerto. And it's a harp concerto, which is odd. It's not odd, that's the wrong word. It's unique. It's unique because there aren't too many harpists out there. Um, if you want to um, increase your chances of being hired for some sort of orchestral position, harp is a good instrument to play because it's a difficult instrument to play well, and there are just not a lot of harpists out there. Uh, this concertino uses glissando, Glissando, if you've ever seen a dream sequence in a cartoon or something, and you hear that, that is a glissando being played on a harp, which is just running your fingers up and down the strings. Um, neoclassical pieces like this uh, really harken back to classical works. That's why they're called neoclassical, new classical pieces. Haydn or Mozart would have felt right at home listening to these works, except they would have thought that the harmonies were a little bit strange. Our next composer is William Grant Still, and he's famous for a couple things. The, probably the thing that he's most known for is he's the first African-American to have a work performed by a major American symphony, and the first African-American composer to have an opera performed by a major uh, opera company. So he was a real trailblazer as far as civil rights and music are concerned. Um, he composed Sirius, that is art music, but he used blues and jazz harmonies and phrasing um, to kind of punctuate 
the, the art music. So it wasn't totally devoid of African-American musical tradition, but this is definitely art music. It's not pop music. So his piece is called A Black Pierrot. Again, it's another Pierrot song. If you recall from our last lecture, a Pierrot is sort of a lovelorn clown. And this piece mixes, like we said, traditions of African-American music with the traditional art song format of Schubert. So think about Earl King. Remember the piece about the boy and his father on horseback? That, that art song is, is telling a story. Um, but with a little bit of the blues mixed in. Uh, this uses a chromatic scale, which is a scale consisting entirely of half steps, so every single note between octaves and octave is used. And it also is through composed. Through composed means that there's no like chorus and verse. Everything is constantly new all the time. There are no repeated sections in this piece of music, which is really disorienting for us coming from a, a sort of a background of pop music where things are just constantly repeated over and over again. Aaron Copeland is another neoclassical American composer. Uh, he's nicknamed America's composer because his music is so evocative of the United States. Um, he was born in Brooklyn, and he wrote symphonies and ballet. He's, he wrote so many things, and one new thing, he wrote film scores, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of people before him that were writing film scores because film was such a new medium. This is an interesting quote from Spike Lee, who is not someone that you might associate immediately with Aaron Copeland. He says, when I listen to Copeland's music, I hear America and basketball is America. It's like he wrote the score for this film. So uh, Copeland's music was used in the film He Got Game, uh, which is... I just think it's an interesting contrast. It's also ironic that Copeland's nickname is America's Composer because back in the 50s, he was actually blackballed during the McCarthy era. Um, someone accused him of having communist sympathies, um, but eventually he was vindicated, and uh, he even received the Congressional Medal of Honor, which is the USA's highest civilian honor. Here are two pieces you can see when you look at the slides of the music of Aaron Copeland, The Fanfare for the Common Man and Appalachian Spring. Both these pieces are very famous. They're often featured in movies and commercials on TV. Um, there's a pretty good chance that you've heard both of them. The piece on your listening quiz is Hoedown from Rodeo. Uh, this is based on the fiddle tune called Bonaparte's Retreat. So it's not an original melody, but it's spruced up a whole lot. And Rodeo is a ballet depicting life in the American West. So as you can see from the, the still from the movie, uh, there are cowboy hats and jeans and button-up shirts aplenty in this thing. Um, the choreography in this ballet includes square dancing and folk dancing. It's a very American thing, again. And uh, Hoedown uses rondo form, which is A-B-A-C-A, -A, if you remember rondo form from earlier in this lecture. Or, not in this lecture, in this course. Our next composer is Leonard Bernstein. Um, he's an American, another American composer and conductor. Uh, he was famous, he achieved his fame by being the, comp the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. 
Uh, he was conductor from 47 to 69. So he had uh, 20, 22 years at the podium, which is a really incredible run. Um, unlike most composers he had or conductors, he was uh, kind of had a warm public persona. Uh, he wasn't scary or um, kind of imposing like a lot of conductors are. Um, and that made him famous outside the world of classical music. He's also famous as a composer. Um, he composed the music for uh, quite a few Broadway musicals, uh, West Side Story, Candide, On the Town. And he also did films on the waterfront. And On the Waterfront is uh, one of the greatest films ever. So it's worth watching just, just for the music, if not for the plot. And then he also wrote his own symphonies. Uh, Bernstein was also uh, known for popularizing uh, or rediscovering the music of Gustav Mahler. Um, that's another thing that he's known for. Um, he did a series of televised specials called Young People's Concerts, which was uh, a, a great thing because up until this point, people just assumed that children would... Uh, grow to love classical music because that's all there was you know pop music is as is a sort of a big thing didn't exist of course after rock and roll happened uh kids were less and less interested in what classical music had to offer and more and more interested in elvis and the beatles so um these young persons concerts did a lot to explain the world of classical music and um kind of created a whole new generation of fans of classical music. As an elementary school and middle school music teacher, I have often showed these uh, films to my students, and they still hold up even after all this time. Next is the Broadway musical. This is an entirely American art form. Um, it started in England uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, some op like operas were just getting out of control. You know, we talked about the ring cycle. It's 16 hours long. People wanted lighter entertainment. Um, so uh, a, a few British composers, uh, the most famous are two guys called Gilbert and Sullivan. They started to create operas that were funny, lighthearted, and short. And they called these operettas. Uh, the American version of, the Broadway, of, the, of an operetta is called a Broadway musical. And they're named, of course, after Broadway in New York City, where there are tons of theaters and they're commonly performed. Uh, Broadway musicals are different than opera in that dialogue is spoken and not sung in between songs. So the only things sung in musicals are the songs. When people are just talking, uh, they, just, they just speak. Our piece from a musical is uh, Leonard Bernstein's Tonight from West Side Story. This is a musical based on Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And instead of um, the Montagues and Capulets, you have two gangs, a Puerto Rican gang um, called the Sharks. No, yes. And a um, Italian gang called the Jets. And uh, the story plays out in much the same way as far as the overarching themes go. It's not a happy ending. But um, the thing that's neat about the music from West Side Story is that it's really fresh and it's really uh, engaging. Uh, tonight uses something called additive form, 
where um, you start out with one person singing and then another person will layer another a different song on top of it, but they all fit together and you get five or six of these songs all going on at once. And it's almost like polyphony again, reaching all the way back to the Middle Ages at the beginning of this course where you have these different voices doing different things at the same time and everything is of equal weight. Um, tonight describes the meeting between Tony and Maria, who are Romeo and Juliet, and uh, at the same time, it features the characters and rival gangs, as well as some of the other women in the uh, in the production. And here is a video of tonight. Please watch that when you go through the slides. Now we go back to um, sort of art music and John Cage. John Cage is a very interesting guy. He's a composer and writer, and also a famous mushroom aficionado. Um, he studied with Schoenberg at an early age, but he became even more, if you can think about it, getting even more modern than Schoenberg, uh, that's John Cage. He actually, instead of even making like a 12-tone grid that had some order, he'd use books of random numbers to determine where to put notes. Um, so audiences would frequently walk out during his performances because they just got so annoyed that everything was so random. He has a famous piece, it's probably his most famous piece, is 4 minutes and 33 seconds, in which the pianist sits at the keyboard in silence for 4 minutes and 33 seconds. And the idea of the piece is that you're supposed to listen to the audience make the sounds that they make as they shuffle around, the, the sound of the music, the page of the music being turned. It's sort of anti-music music, I guess. This is a piece by John Cage that is also very interesting. There's, you know, you can say a lot of things about John Cage, but uh, you could never call him uninteresting. Uh, it uses prepared piano, and as you can see from the uh, screenshot of the video here, that prepared piano is where you take nuts and screws and bolts and pencils and erasers and whatever the composer specifies at the at the beginning of the music to place in certain strings on the piano. And there are very specific uh, placement instructions and also item instructions. Um, as you can see, um, Cage specified that the eraser that you must use must be an American Pencil Company number 346 eraser when you do your prepared piano. So the resulting sound is similar to an Indonesian ensemble called a gamelan. Now where have we heard that before? Do you remember the Indonesian ensemble? This was way back when we were talking about Debussy, who was also influenced by gamelan music uh, when he wrote his piece Vols. So... Let's talk about Gamelan. Uh, this is a musical ensemble from Indonesia, and it consists of two percussion instruments. There is the gender and the trompong. Okay, the gender is like a Western xylophone, and the trompong is like little gongs um, that face up, and you play them with mallets also. So uh, let's take a look at this ensemble. There's like there are a lot of people in a Gamelan. When you watch this video, you'll see that there are quite a few members of the ensemble, but there's only two instruments. So all of these people, and the, the precision is, is really fantastic. Uh, the name of this song, Ong Kong, Ong Kongan, uh, imitates the sound of rice mortars as rice is husked. 
So a rice mortar is kind of a, a stone bowl that you pound to separate the, the rice from its husk. And that's what this piece is supposed to imitate. Um, the shimmering sound is created by when you tune the instruments, you want to tune them very slightly apart. And um, when you listen to this piece, it just seems like it sort of envelops you and you don't know whether it's coming or going. And that is a big part of why it was so influential to these 20th century composers. Okay, we finally get to talk about a composer who has not passed away. Uh, Philip Glass was born in 1937, and he's still with us. Uh, Philip Glass is a minimalist American composer. Uh, he formed his own ensemble in the 1960s, and it still tours today. It doesn't have the same people in it, but they still it still performs Philip Glass's music. Uh, he studied at Juilliard, which is kind of the Harvard of music schools, and then he traveled to India to study with Ravi Shankar. So he's had kind of a wide berth of musical influence. Um, he's written 10 operas and scored a lot of mainstream films like The Illusionist and The Truman Show. The piece on our listening quiz is a minimalist opera called Einstein on the Beach. Now, uh, it's it's an odd thing. Um, almost everything about it is odd. It, it has no plot. It's very long. It's about five hours long. The audience is encouraged to kind of get up and move around. If they need to take a break from the opera, they can actually leave and go out and, you know, get a drink and come back in or whatever. And it's built around these centerpieces. There's, there's a train in one scene, a trial, and then a spaceship. And... Um, Einstein does appear and plays the violin. A lot of times he's just off stage, so you can barely see him. It just depends on the, the production. And the this is sort of the opposite of program music, where you're supposed to read your own meaning into this opera. Um, our song from the listening quiz is called Knee Play One, and it's from Einstein on the Beach. It comes from uh, the beginning part of the opera, and it's minimalist. What does that mean, minimalist? Uh, minimalist compositions have uh, usually just like a brief musical idea, maybe just like a three-note phrase that's repeated over and over and over and over again, and just when you think that it'll never change, it changes but it changes ever so slightly. But even though it changes ever so slightly, um, your brain interprets that as a huge change because you've been used to listening to it in its original form for so long. Um, it, Einstein on the Beach and all minimalist works involve heavy use of ostinato, which is this repeated underlying rhythm. If you remember earlier in the course when we talked about Money by Pink Floyd, that has an ostinato part, a part that just repeats over and over underneath whatever else is going on in the piece. And now we move on to postmodernism. Postmodernism uh, is a style that mixes traditional and modern elements, but unlike neoclassicism that kind of rejected the most extreme elements of modernism, uh, postmodernism embraces those. So you're going to hear a lot of what sounds like noise to the untrained ear in postmodernism. Um, but 
instead of it being all dark and serious, like original modernism, remember the aftermath of World War One and all the horror movie stuff, this is much more playful. Uh, it's not Schoenberg as much as it is uh, Andy Warhol, we'll say. So this is uh, a, a piece by Tanya Leon called A La Par. Tanya Leon is a Cuban-American composer, and she was... Um, the first musical director at the Dance Theater of Harlem. Uh, Alapar means at the same time as, and it references uh, modern and traditional styles. Um, so it mixes the rhythms of Cuban popular dance with sort of atonal harmonies. And uh, it was written for piano and percussion ensemble. So you can hear this, uh, and it will sound it will sound odd to you, but there is some melodic content. Uh, you just have to listen really hard to get it. Um, it's definitely it's definitely an interesting piece. Okay, now it's time to leave the world of art music and do a brief trip into popular music. We're going to talk just briefly about rock and roll. Uh, rock and roll was born in the 1950s in the United States. It kind of took elements of the blues and elements of the, the swing, the danceable swing rhythms of the big band era and combined them. Um, and it was sort of a perfect storm because the generation of baby boomers was coming of age, of teenage years. And uh, the World War II generation had sort of built such a comfortable life for these teenagers that they had enough free time that they could do something like uh, listen to music all the time and talk to their friends on the phone. So this whole new market opened up for uh, people to sell stuff to, and rock and roll was one of those commodities. Um, there were a lot of films that uh, simultaneously condemned this, but also glorified it, because if, you, if there's a movie that comes out that says, well, look how bad these kids are being, well, of course the kids are going to go see the movie and be like, wow, that's really cool, I want to do that. And that's what Blackboard Jungle and Rebel Without a Cause, all those James Dean movies... They all sort of personified that. And so I've got a uh, trailer here from the film Blackboard Jungle, which features the soundtrack, a rock and roll soundtrack by Bill Haley. Now we'll talk about Chuck Berry. Uh, Chuck Berry was one of the most influential early rock and rollers. Uh, he began his career late in life. Uh, he went to prison for a while for stealing a car, but after he got out, he said, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll be a musician. And uh, he was in his 30s when he first became famous. Um, he had these guitar licks that, I mean, are just synonymous with rock and roll, and they were copied by almost everybody. Now, that's not to say that he didn't copy some of them himself from more obscure musicians, but he really made them famous. If you've ever heard uh, Sweet Little Sixteen or Roll Over Beethoven, um, No Particular Place to Go, all Chuck Berry songs, they kind of all sound the same, to be honest with you, um, but they've got these really, really signature guitar solos. And Chuck Berry still performs to this day, even though he's getting up there in age. So here is a, um, a recording of School Days by Chuck Berry. This features a shuffle groove, which is this sort of bump, ba bump, ba bump, ba bump. It's sort of falling into the next beat. Uh, it's a mid-tempo swing rhythm with accents on all four beats. It uses stop time, 
where instrumentalists will stop. They go, da 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 and then Chuck will sing, riding along in my automobile, and then it will start back in. That's an idea of stop time. Um, it combines classic blues themes, so making romance, these sort of kind of metaphors for more illicit activity, but it combines them with teenager culture, and it somehow makes it more innocent. Um, so that was that was sort of Chuck Berry's formula, and he really milked that for all it was worth, because a lot of his songs kind of focus on these same themes. And finally, let's talk a little bit about rap music. Rap music began in New York City in the early 1980s, and uh, particularly the Bronx. The Bronx um, was pretty run down in the late, actually starting in the late 60s and then culminating in the early 80s. Um, it was just kind of abandoned by people that could get out. And the people that were left um, started this sort of underground culture which centered around going to house parties and people would play records and people would start to realize that they could spin records in new and interesting ways. And at the same time, you'd have an MC, a person that was, you know, the head of the party, and he would kind of come up with interesting rhymes that make people laugh or whatever. And these two elements formed together to form the form rap music. So musical elements of rap, you've got a steady, throbbing beat that doesn't change. You know, when you hear the beat at the beginning of a rap song, chances are that's what's going to play all the way through. And then over that steady, throbbing beat, you have the vocal part, which is the complicated rhythmic patterns that repeat over the beat. And then in addition to that, you have the syncopated lyrics. And these syncopated lyrics, they weave in and out of the groove. And so all three of these elements come together to kind of form it's sort of a modern imitative counterpoint um, where you have all of these different interlocking pieces together our rap group we're going to be studying is public enemy public enemy was founded in 1982 by chuck d and flavor flav among others um, and they were unique in their day because at this time rap music wasn't really focused on a lot of social issues uh, and Public Enemy was all over that. And they were controversial because of it. It made people, especially white people, uncomfortable that uh, there was a group out there that was speaking uh, what they considered to be the truth about racism and police brutality, civil rights, the AIDS epidemic. Um, you know, rap music up until this point was more about having a good time and partying. This is before sort of the gangster rap uh, on the West Coast. So uh, another thing that Chuck D pioneered was uh, he had this really rapid-fire delivery. He would rap incredibly fast compared to other rappers of his day. Now, compared to rappers of our time, it doesn't sound that impressive, but it, he really blazed a new trail in, in terms of his delivery. So, Public Enemy's uh, piece on our listening quiz is Fight the Power. And this was actually composed for a Spike Lee film. We talked about Spike Lee and Aaron Copeland before. This was an earlier Spike Lee film. In fact, I think it might have been the first one, Do the Right Thing. And it features uh, sort of a mainstay of rap music, sampled beats. So these are short snippets of recordings from uh, 60s and 70s funk and soul albums. And uh, just a little piece of trivia, the verses of this song are all different links, unusual for pop music. And um, this recording is not included on your CDs. Um, it is on the listening quiz, but uh, you can go to YouTube. In fact, there's a YouTube video right here on this slide, and you can watch it for that. 
All right, we've reached the end of our lecture and uh, the end of the course. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at john.schaller at wvstateu.edu. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed the course and I hope you've learned something.